May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Just a, just a sort of uh, a question to uh, get us started. Who, who, who of these two characters do you prefer? Um, I, I realise that anybody under the age of 20 probably doesn't know who these people are. But um, um, the one on, on your left is... Jeremy Clarkson. And the one on our right is... Lenny Henry, Lenny Henry. Okay, so Jeremy Clarkson, Lenny Henry, two blokes who are on the telly a lot, or certainly were, did used to be on the telly a lot. Um, and um, I, I wanted to put them up because it seems to me that they, they, they represent in some ways um, somebody who seems to only say negative things and somebody who primarily says positive things. Um, so uh, Jeremy Clarkson will probably make you laugh but he'll make you laugh by telling you how bad things are and, and how, uh, how they're not as they should, to, should be. Um, whereas Lenny Henry seems to be able to reflect on life and help you to see how uh, the delight is there if you just take a little moment to find it. So who do you prefer? Or perhaps more question, who are you more like? Who are you more like? And perhaps have a, have a think about that this morning. Who are you more like? Are you more like a Jeremy Clarkson? Or are you more like a Lenny Henry? Okay, so let's just have, a, have that in the back of your mind as we start to, uh, to think together about this chapter. We've been following the story of Abraham and Sarah. We've been thinking about them as a couple and the promises of God as they come to them. Uh, we've learned how they left uh, their home and, and traveled uh, a long distance uh, to the promised land. And there began to sort of set up camp. And uh, they are drawn into this relationship uh, with the Lord God, which is uh, called or characterized as a covenant, a deep and solemn promise uh, between Abraham and his family and the Lord. And the Lord promises uh, Abraham and his family that they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand underneath their feet. And it's a beautiful promise. And even promises that through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It is the beginning of the covenant, which of course ultimately blossoms into the people of Israel. And then through them, of course, into Jesus and as Jesus fulfills the covenant and opens it up, we stand in the new covenant, the new testament, as the people of God who are inheritors of this beautiful promise. There's just, of course, one problem, and that is that Abraham and Sarah have no children. And the promise keeps coming to them and keeps coming to them and keeps coming to them and they grow into their old age. And in the first half of this chapter, which we didn't read, the first half, there is the final moment of promise. Abraham and Sarah receive three visitors. They're somewhat mysterious visitors. They appear in the heat of the day. But immediately that Abraham sees them, he can see that there's something different about them. 
He rises and he goes to greet them and he asks them to stay. He provides water for their feet and he goes, finds the best calf in his herds and prepares a meal, a feast for them. And they eat together. And Abraham actually waits on them. Abraham is their servant. And after the meal, uh, there is a, a conversation, the first of several conversations in this chapter. And during that conversation, uh, Abraham is speaking to the Lord. So whoever these visitors are, they seem at first to seem like people. Then it seems like angels. Then they're actually the Lord himself. Some people have read the chapter as, a, as an early indication of the Trinity, that God is there in three persons. And there is this amazing encounter in the tent and the Lord reassures Abraham once again that his covenant will be fulfilled that his promise is faithful and they will have a child and Sarah is in the back of the tent and she laughs she laughs and there's this lovely sort of teacher moment a bit like almost like in a school class that because uh, the the Lord says to to Sarah why did you laugh Okay? And Sarah's embarrassed and say, I did, I did, I did, I did laugh. And he says, yes, you did. And like this. This all happens in the first half of the chapter. The reassurance that God is faithful. The reassurance of his uh, initiative. It is his covenant and he will fulfill it. It is his promise and he is faithful. But in the second half of the chapter, the chapter that we read, we get something equally amazing. Not just the promise of a child, but a conversation between Abraham and the Lord. And there seems to be something very deliberate going on here. The Lord wants to have a conversation with Abraham. He's walking along and he's saying, shall I withhold from Abraham? What I'm going to do? Isn't he the one through whom I'm going to bless the whole world? Can I withhold this information from him? And Abraham begins to speak. And there is, as I say, an intimacy about this conversation. It's almost as if you're back in the Garden of Eden for a moment. And the people are speaking with God. A conversation, an interaction, a dialogue. And just as the covenant promises are true, just as God will be faithful to his covenant, so God's commitment to deal with evil and wickedness is also true. His faithfulness in blessing and his faithfulness in dealing with evil are equally true. And in this story, it's almost as if we get both sides of those coins, that coin. The first half is talking about God's faithfulness and his covenant and his promise to bless. The second half is saying evil will not flourish ultimately. It will be dealt with. That is part of the goodness of God. And if it weren't, then evil would be able to take root and spoil and destroy, 
to oppress and to cause suffering. It is because of the goodness of God that ultimately evil and wickedness will not have the last day. Judgment is real because without it, God's love cannot extend over the whole earth. So strange as it may seem, we do need both the covenant promise to bless, but also the promise of God that ultimately evil and wickedness will be held to account. But what will this judgment look like? Is it indiscriminate? Is it like one of these hideous and horrible missiles we see in the news used in warfare that just obliterate everything and everyone in their path? It seems that Abraham and the Lord are looking down from a higher place onto the city of Sodom. And Abraham says, surely the righteous will not be killed with the righteous. That is not your way. Surely the judge of all the earth will do right. This is not your character. You don't just destroy everything. And, there, and so begins this amazing conversation, which almost sounds like it's from a, from a market, doesn't it? Like a market trader, like you're haggling with somebody. I'm not paying five pounds for a pound of apples. Give them to me for 450. No, I don't want them for 450. Give them for four pounds. And down and down they go. What's going on in this conversation? Is Abraham actually changing God's mind? Is he somehow stopping the Lord from doing what the Lord set out to do? Or is it that the Lord is looking to Abraham to see how Abraham understands the Lord's purposes? How does Abraham understand God's judgment and his love? Can Abraham see that God's purposes are always more to bless than to judge, to spare than to punish? Can Abraham see what God is really like? And Abraham does really well, doesn't he? He doesn't just ask for his family to be rescued. If we think about the story of Noah, which comes just a few chapters earlier in this book, you get Noah and his wife, the three sons and their wives, and they're saved. Everyone else receives the judgment of God. Abraham could look down at Sodom and say, my nephew Lot and his wife and their two children are there. Please just rescue them and nuke the rest of them. But he doesn't. He asks the Lord time and time again to spare the whole city because of those who are righteous, because of those who are living well. And perhaps because Abraham knows what Sodom is like, he knows that 50 is too high. And so this remarkable conversation, which comes all the way down to 10. And the Lord says, if I can find just 10, I will spare the city. 
And next week, Paul, bless him, is going to tell us what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the next chapter in the story. But a question, a question for me, for you, for all of us. How do you see our city? Do we just see the wrong in it? Do we see the van parked over half of our entrance this morning? I think I know the guy whose van it is. He's lovely. He's really, really nice. He's called Sam, and he's a Christian, and he parks his van badly, okay? Do we see the awful driving? People tearing up and down residential roads in far too powerful cars, going way too fast. Do we see the littering? Do we see the antisocial behavior? Do we see the people parking in the, uh, in, in, in the box junction at the bottom of Springfield Road so you can't get round? And you have to go the wrong side of the bollard, and I've done that lots of times. What do you see? More seriously, do you see the drug problem that we face? Do you see young people lured into gang life? Do you see those who prey on the vulnerable? Now, please don't misunderstand me. These things are wrong, deeply and profoundly wrong. And we should not excuse or collude with them. And we can trust, can't we, that will not the judge of all the earth do right? God will hold people to account. That is what he does. But for now, in this moment, what do we do? Do we say, Lord, look at all this dreadful stuff. Please sort it out. Or do we say, as Abraham said, Lord, if there were just a few righteous people here, would you spare the city? Would you give us chance to make amends? Would you give us chance to repent? Would you give us chance to live lives that reflect your love, your grace, your compassion, your justice, your restoration? Would you give us chance by the power of your spirit to live and build and make a place which reflects your love and your joy and your peace and your compassion? Would you spare the city a little longer so that your kingdom can come? That's what Abraham prayed when he saw the city of Sodom. He said, just for the sake of ten, spare it. And then maybe there is time for them to change. How do we look at our city? Do we despair? Or do we say, Lord, spare the city so that there is time, time for you to come and do your work? And let us pray for our city, Lord, have mercy. 
and let us live in a place which is kinder and gentler and more compassionate. And then might we take a step further and say, Lord, might I be one of the righteous ones that you see and you will spare the city because you see me and us? Might I be one of those who is living so differently with love and joy and hope and compassion and justice that the Lord sees us and he says, I will spare the city and give it time. And yes, you know, it's really difficult to live like that. It really is. Courtesy is difficult in a society which tells us to get on, to look after number one, to, to, to be full of self-care. There's nothing wrong with self-care, by the way. But courtesy is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult when you're on the bus. It's difficult when you're driving your car. It's difficult in the street. It's difficult in a queue. Courtesy is difficult. Compassion is difficult. We live in a society, doesn't, don't we, that tells us that charity begins at home. Look after your own nation, your own interests, your own community. The others can sort themselves out. Justice is difficult. To say out loud that for too long we have been part of a system which favours those who have wealth and prejudices those who don't. Grace is difficult. To think the best of people, not the worst. Joy is difficult. To find the reasons to smile, not to frown, not to disapprove, not to be filled with that passive aggression which is so easy. Love is difficult. To be like Jesus is difficult. So what does this passage teach us? Firstly, it reminds us of God's initiative and his intimacy. The Lord reaches out to Abraham and Sarah and engages Abraham in this remarkable conversation. It reminds us, if nothing else, that the one who put the stars in place wants to talk to us. Isn't that incredible? The one who set that meteor going that NASA put their space machine into this week and we're very pleased that they've done it. Okay? The one who put that on its trajectory first. He wants to speak with you and me. And more than that, in the context and the part of that conversation, he wants us to understand the purposes and character of God, what God is doing and how he does it, what kind of person he is. And to be reminded that he is surprisingly gracious, surprisingly generous, surprisingly like we know he always is. There is initiative and there is intimacy. And then there is the reminder to pray for our city. Lord, have mercy. Lord, spare it. There is stuff wrong here. 
We can see it. God can see it much more. And we trust that the judge of all the earth will do right. But we can either turn away and ask the Lord to sweep it away. Or we can pray, <clears throat> Lord have mercy. Let there be time for people to come to their senses. To see that these ways of living are wrong. And to create the kind of city where we are all proud to live. Where we all see Christ in one another where we all love like he loves us. Pray for a city like that and then dare, dare to be one of the righteous ones, to live lives full of life and love and joy and hope. In a world where there is too much that pushes those things out of us. Allow the Spirit of God to fill us once again with life and love and joy and hope. Maybe the Lord says, because of you, I will spare the city. I will give them longer. I will wait and let's see. Amen. We're going to pray together, and I'm delighted that Lawrence is going to lead us in our prayers. So let's pray together.